Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we begin revisiting a series of Dr. Newfeld's called Finding Pleasure in God. So turn to Psalm 42, verses 1 to 4, with the message titled, Feeling Abandoned by God. I'm reading Psalm 42, 1 to 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Now, these two verses have been quoted on numerous occasions simply because they express so well the heart's hunger after God. Augustine said that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. More recently, but still some years ago now, John Piper broke into our consciousness when he first published his book, Desiring God, The Meditations of a Christian Hedonist. In a book that arrested so many of our attentions, Piper said he wanted to climb on top of the tallest building in New York City and shout, Hedonistic America, you are not nearly hedonistic enough. You have sought pleasure that satisfied you for a moment and left you with long-term emptiness and sorrow and regret when the greatest pleasure of all, the pleasure of knowing God awaited you, but you would not have it. The idea of our souls panting for God is an image we should treasure, panting after God, looking to satisfy our thirst with God, passionately desiring God, finding God to be our highest joy. All these are images that reflect the redeemed heart's only satisfaction in God. I've always been attracted to those two verses because I have meditated on them in the past, and I've always taken those two lines as a mandate to develop a heart hunger after God. Like a deer that perhaps is running from a predator and needs water so that it can go on, it, it finds itself in a condition of desperation. It needs water to survive. So all it can think about is water and where to find it. It looks for it and it smells for it. It runs for it, pants for it, longs for it, because water means life. Water has become its all-consuming passion. In the same way, if all of us could only see that's how we need God. I'm desperate for God. I need him to survive. He's the sum total of my heart's longing. And so as I thought about what I might say about Psalm 42, I thought that these are the kind of things that I would stress. But as I read and reread this psalm this week, it, it became clear to me that this psalm is, is really not about developing a heart hunger for God at all. Indeed, the man who writes this, who identifies himself as one of the sons of Korah, well, he already has this desperation for God. That's a given for him. And it is his desperation for God that forms the drama that he's speaking about. But let me step backwards for a moment. Let me introduce you to the man who's writing this psalm. He identifies himself as one of the sons of Korah. Some of you may remember Korah. Back during the time of Moses, there was a man by the name of Korah. He was a priest of the tribe of Levi, priestly class, and this man led a rebellion against Moses, a rebellion that included 250 community leaders. He challenged Moses' authority to lead, and in response, a miracle occurred. God opened the ground. I don't know how, perhaps, perhaps it was an earthquake, but the ground split open right underneath him, and he and a large part of his family, including his assets, tumbled into the earth. In fact, the Bible says he went alive into Sheol. Now, later, the rebellion of Korah became a watchword in Israel, a warning against rebelling against God. 
In fact, the book of Jude, the second last book in the Bible, mentions him as a symbol for those who rebel against God, calling them people who blaspheme the things they don't understand, and people who behave like unreasoning animals and resist the plans of God. Woe to them, says Jude, they behave like Korah. That's quite a description of this man's ancestor, a man who blasphemed what he didn't understand and behaved like an unreasoning animal. Now, as interesting as that might seem, some of Korah's descendants survived the disaster mentioned in the book of Numbers. In fact, 1 Chronicles chapter 9 mentions that the sons of Korah during the time of David were keepers of the threshold of the tent, which means they were charged with the upkeep of the tabernacle of God, and they were guards assigned to make sure the tabernacle was safe and secure. By 2 Chronicles chapter 20, during the reign of King Jehoshaphat, we find that the sons of Korah, in a time of national crisis, stood up and led Israel in worship, which led to a national revival. 2 Chronicles 20, verses 18 and 19 simply says, Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites, there's our people, stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And so we can see that the clan of Korah would be counted among the key spiritual leaders in Israel, ready to call God's people to believe and to be faithful. From a family history of a father who disgraced his family came descendants who became known for faithfulness in worship and for a model of godly conduct. I mean, if we had time to examine the history of Korah's sons, we would come to the conclusion that their history teaches us a very valuable lesson. Regardless of your family background, you can become a faithful leader among God's people. You never have to say, well, you know, my family's a nothing family, and therefore I won't amount to much either. It's just not true. Your family history does not hold you back. Now, with this background, we come to the son of Korah. Look at verse 4 later in the psalm. It says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession of the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. So what is this son of Korah referring to? You might have noticed in our study of the psalms that there is a later grouping of the psalms which are referred to as the psalms of ascent. There are 15 of them. They cover Psalms 120 through to 134. Psalms 120 and following have often been referred to as the Songs of Ascent. They've also been called Pilgrim Psalms. See, I want you to imagine the three sacred festivals in Israel. There's Passover, then there's the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost, and then finally the Feast of Booths. Now, during these times, pilgrims would make their way to Jerusalem, and they'd celebrate the mighty acts of God. And as they came within sight of Jerusalem from all over Israel, they'd begin to climb the ascent to the holy city, and they'd begin to sing. Songs like Psalm 122, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Or like Psalm 125, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be removed, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. And they would all sing with joy, and singing filled the valleys around Jerusalem as as God's people were coming to celebrate. And says the writer of Psalm 42, this son of Korah, I used to lead that throng. 
I'd start the singing. I, I would lead them all the way through the gates. My job was to fill their hearts with excitement and anticipation as they came to sacrifice the Passover lamb and remember God's deliverance. But in here, as we continue through this psalm, we will see that when he writes this psalm, that is Psalm 42, he's no longer doing that. In verse 6, he writes, My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and Hermon from Mount Mitzar. Now, Mount Mitzar was probably among the hills around Mount Hermon, which was far to the north of Jerusalem. So the question might be, what's he doing there? Well, traditionally, it's been thought that the man who wrote Psalm 42, this son of Korah, wrote this psalm while he was fleeing with King David. You might remember 2 Samuel 15 and following, which which describes a mutinous rebellion in Israel. The king's own son, Absalom, had led a rebellion against his father, attempting to depose him and become king. And David was forced to abandon Jerusalem, fleeing for his life. In time, David would rally his army and Absalom would be defeated, but it might well be that this son of Korah was one of the men faithful to his king, fleeing from his home and not sure whether he would ever have anything left or whether he would have a a home to come back to or whether he'd be killed in a battle. And in this state, he finds himself longing for those days when he used to lead God's people in worship, and he weeps at the thought that he may never have a chance to do that thing again. See, the longing that we read about in Psalm 42 is the longing of a man who wonders whether he still has a place in God's service. Psalm 84, which is also a psalm of the sons of Korah, and may well have been written by the very same man who wrote Psalm 42. So listen to what Psalm 84 verse 2 says. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. And then in verse 10, he adds the thought, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. And that's the heartbeat. A man who loves his God and loves the temple courts of his God is now living as a refugee, wondering if he's ever going to go back to the place that his heart loves. And in the process, he feels abandoned by God. Heidi wrote in to say, I discovered your program last summer, and since then, well, I've learned so much from the expository teaching of the Bible. Well, thanks, Heidi. You know, it's hearing the stories of friends like you that assures us that the Bible teaching program is making a difference. If you believe in the importance of sharing the Word of God across our nation, perhaps you'd consider offering a financial gift to support Back to the Bible Canada this month, or consider becoming a monthly partner. Your regular gift ensures that the daily Bible teaching program is heard in your community and right across the country. Your gift of any amount allows the Word of God to reach those searching for truth. To send a one-time gift or to become a monthly partner, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. That's 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Psalm 42 is written by a man who speaks about the pleasure he finds in God and yet, at the same time, feeling abandoned by God. 
Circumstances of his life were beyond his control, but no circumstances were beyond God's control. Why would God allow him to be removed from the service of God in the temple courts? See, there's a point of connection here for all of us. Disappointments in life are often a place where many of us will feel abandoned by God. I mean, I know sometimes it's job loss or an inability to care for our families. I've talked to people who have told me that giving to the Lord's work was one of the joys of their lives, but now that they've lost their job or their business, they feel abandoned by God. You know, I have a personal memory of a man whom I loved and who would eventually die of ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. In the early stages, he had noticed that he was slurring his speech, and he had asked me to pray with him that he would not lose his ability to speak. He told me that one of the joys in his life was leading God's people in prayer times, and if he lost his ability to speak, he would lose one of the joys of his life. You know, I prayed earnestly with him and also afterward, but Harry, well, he lost his ability to speak. Did he feel abandoned by God? Well, I don't know. But I do know that I've often spoken with godly people who tell me of just such times when they've cried out to God, and at least from their perspective, God didn't answer. Did God simply turn his back on them? So let's listen to one man's experience. Psalm 42, verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Now, we've noticed the deep inner longing for God, but as we're going to see in this man's experience, he does not seem to find God. Martin Luther had something quite profound to say about this verse. He said, here a man must make a distinction, for God is of two kinds. At times, he's a hidden and covered God. The other picture or concept of God is that he is openly manifested and not a hidden God. That is to say, he is the picture of a kindly, gracious, merciful, and reconciled God. Then Luther goes on to say, even as the sun is of two kinds, sometimes covered with clouds and sometimes shining out of a clear sky. Now, when the sky is covered with clouds, there might emerge a kind of desperation. God might appear hidden when we are in a season of temptation or when we're struggling with our own shortcomings, when others slander us or when our enemy seems to have won the day and he's triumphed over us or when we struggle with illness or something like that. In times like this, we feel sidelined. But just like the streams of water that flow in some of the wadis in Israel, there may be months of the year when the riverbed is dry. And at that time, a deer may desperately search for water and may not find it. And says the son of Korah, that's exactly how I feel, abandoned by God. Now to verse 2. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? I notice that in this verse, the author adds the phrase, the living God. Now, please see in this phrase that while God is not found, the author doesn't doubt that he's there. God's not like a dry riverbed at all. His streams flow eternally. It's just that the psalmist is saying that in his case, he is now at a place where he is incapable of drinking from that stream. God seems to have blocked his way, or at least, let me say it again, that's how he feels. Notice also the question, when shall I come and appear before God? Now, in context, I think it's fair to say that what he has in mind is appearing before God in the sanctuary that is in the tabernacle that was located in Jerusalem. What he's missing is that, you know, because of the civil war in Israel and the, and the fact that evil men have taken over Jerusalem, he's unable to go to the very place where God was said to dwell. 
Now, we must not confuse this situation. The psalmist isn't saying that without the tabernacle, he would be unable to sense God's nearness. Look, he knows that God is omnipresent. God can be found wherever anyone seeks him. But please understand the context. The reason for this civil war, the the reason for Absalom's rancor against his father, this had everything in the world to do with David's sin. David's act of adultery with Bathsheba was beginning to pay dividends in David's family. David's family was fraying and falling apart. It was sin, that sin of David, that had caused this. And because the sin in the royal family of the king, the entire nation was suffering as a result. And so the right application is that sin had caused God's presence to appear hidden from the psalmist. That's still the application. It can be our own sin, it can be the sin of others, but sin will make it appear that God is a very long way away. I'm reading verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night, while, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? So notice the contrast. At night he weeps, and during the day, he puts up with the taunting of others. Where's your God? Now, during the time that this psalm is being written, I mean, atheism was almost non-existent. So, whoever the person is who's taunting the son of Korah, he's, he's not saying, I don't believe there's a God. Rather, the person is taunting him that's saying, your God's not helping you. He's abandoned you. God finds you to be worthless. He's throwing you aside. I mean, where is your God? He's certainly not with you. And that's where I'm going in this sermon, abandoned by God. I think there can be no greater terror than the terror that comes from a person who's praying for help and waiting for God to heal or to deliver or to restore one to a place of ministry. And heaven is intensely and overwhelmingly silent. You pray, nothing. You wait, nothing. You plead, and nothing. And now you weep. My tears have been my food, he says. Rather than eating, I'm weeping. Some commentators say he's now in deep depression. His soul is in turmoil. I wonder how many of us have gone through that. I I know that I have. Now, we can't say who specifically was taunting the psalmist. Was it the enemies of David? Well, perhaps. Or perhaps he had heard a word from the people who had replaced him at the temple. People who disliked him there and were, were making plans so that he should never be back. Another theory is that he had been taken captive by one of the enemies of Israel. Well, truth be told, we don't know why he was so mercilessly taunted, but he is. He's devastated with no one to help. He's alone. He has enemies and they mock him. He's, he's miles from home and God is not answering his prayers. And now he's desperate for God. But heaven is remarkably silent. I'm panting after God like a deer looking for water, he says, but I remain desperate with thirst. There are two descriptions of feeling abandoned by God. First, there is the feeling as if God were absent, and then following that, there's that great personal struggle. Now, those two things. And I really don't have to describe that. Look inside yourself and remember your own history. Or maybe think of what you encountered today. Have you ever prayed in desperation and there is no answer? Or have you ever felt deeply overwhelmed that God simply did not speak? And so you ask, does he still love me? Does he care? Perhaps my sins are so great that I've been abandoned. Some years ago, I remember a mine collapse in Utah. And as the news media was scrambling for stories, they came up with an older story where in a previous mine, the families of trapped miners were gathered in a nearby church and they waited and prayed. 
The news came. All the miners had been found and they were safe. In front of the watching news cameras, the, the families gathered in front of the church and sang loudly and boldly with joy and gratefulness. They sang, how great thou art. You know, moments later came the news. There had been a, a horrible mistake in communication. The miners were in fact found, but they were dead. And in the grief-stricken moments after, one woman said, I'm a Christian woman, but today, I don't even know if there is a Lord. She said it out of immense grief. Have you ever said that? See, in this case, the enemies of this man are saying it. Maybe you're saying it today. In the time that remains, I want to tell you what you can do in those moments when you feel abandoned by God, and then amazingly, what God is doing in those moments. And so, what does God do? Listen to verse 4. The psalmist says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in a procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Do you notice this is not a psalm of despair? This is a psalm of hope. And as we're going to see tomorrow, we're going to discover that, that the way to hopefulness is to move from a feeling of being abandoned by God to the truth of remembering who God is and what he's done in our lives. For God is not abandoning us at all. Our feelings are deceiving us. God's truth will lead us back to hope. Heavenly Father, I pray for those today who feel abandoned by you. I pray, Heavenly Father, that they will take the time to read this psalm and recover what they must recover that their God has never left them or forsaken them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. John, thanks so much for your message today. I gotta ask you the question, is there anybody out there that at some point doesn't feel abandoned by God? Yeah, I think that is a universal experience. And you've gotta believe that since it's so universal among all of us, that God in his wisdom has decided that we need these very kinds of experiences. I, I think there are wonderful experiences that we have with God on the mountaintop. And, you know, that's when we hear, hear his voice constantly speaking to us. And, you know, I mean, everything is alive around us with God's presence. But I think that walking through the valley of the shadow is such an important experience for believers. I don't know that there are any lessons of faith that we can that we can possibly escape unless we have those experiences that that dark night of the soul needs to be there it it changes our faith. Thanks so much John. Well, this is back to the Bible Canada where we teach the Bible. Have you heard? Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again are inviting you on a cruise. February 7th to the 16th, 2020, we'll be setting sail for the Southern Caribbean. And we want you to join us for a nine-night cruise adventure that will leave you not only physically refreshed, but spiritually as well. Experience ports of call, including Aruba, Bonaire, and Curacao. Dr. John Newfeld will be joining us, providing amazing Bible teaching that will inspire and deepen your walk with Jesus. Phil Calloway will lift your spirits and perhaps make you laugh in a way you've never laughed in years. And be encouraged by the music of friends Shane and Angela Weave. It's a fantastic opportunity for a vacation while experiencing great Bible teaching, laughter, and fellowship. 
So for more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or head over to backtothebibletours.ca.